You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. Um, so we haven't got long this morning as we have our wonderful church forum, so we'll get straight into it. This is the fifth week in our series looking at Genesis, what happened next. And so far, we've had Abraham, Lot, Sarah, Hagar, Isaac, Rebecca. Next week, Steve's going to end the series by talking about Joseph. And this morning, I'm going to talk about the role that Jacob played in our story. We're going to start from Genesis chapter 28, which is just after Jacob has stolen the birthright from his older brother Esau. And so Rebecca, their mother, tells him to run away to go and stay with Rebecca's brother Laban in Haran because Esau is angry and is looking for him. To be fair, Esau has every right to be angry with him. Stealing a birthright really wasn't one of those things that you did in those days. Now, there are loads of things in this Bible story. So we're going to race through it uh, and then at the end of it, look at one of them a bit in a bit more detail. Jacob leaves Beersheba at the beginning of this, he sets off for Haran, and then at some point he has to stop overnight because he needs a rest. While he does that, he has a dream about a ladder, a stairway that's going up to heaven. There are some angels, some messengers from God, who are coming up and down this staircase. It is God's way of saying the kingdom of God is no longer, there's no longer a separation between heaven and earth. The angels were going up and down the stairs. They were saying the kingdom of God is on earth your will be done on heaven as it is on earth, as somebody else put it a bit later on in the story. Um, In the dream, God also says to Jacob that he will give Jacob and his descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Jacob wakes, and he makes a pillar to symbolize that God has been in this place. He moves on, and eventually he gets to Laban's place, and then he meets someone called Rachel. Immediately, he falls in love with Rachel, and so Jacob goes to see Laban, and he says, can I work for you? I've just come uh, to come and work for you, and he says, oh, yeah, even though you are my nephew, I still need to pay you uh, something for all this work that you're going to be doing for me, and so Jacob says, I don't want any monetary reward. What I would like is to marry Rachel. Laban then replies and says, yes, you work for me for seven years, and after seven years, you can marry my daughter. So Jacob, it says, served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Isn't that wonderful? A lovely part of this story. I was thinking about what, how long the last seven years had felt like to me in my marriage and how long I had been married. <laughs> and it reminded me that seven years ago we had a toddler and a newborn and in those days each day could feel like it was taking seven years. But still, Jacob and Rachel. So he then starts to marry, starts to work for Laban and he works for him for seven years and finally... Finally, it's his wedding day, and Laban turns up with Leah, Rachel's older sister. Last week, Steve described this as the Bible's first love triangle. Laban says, well, I couldn't let my younger daughter get married first, because that's not the way that it's done, is it? Tell you what, you can marry Rachel as well if you do another seven years work for me. I mean, if we're discussing the Laban and Jacob working employer-employee relationship, then really you have to say that this is a good reason why people should join trade unions. 
Although, given that the reason that Jacob came to be there in the first place was of a similar issue, uh, he couldn't really argue too much about a father being unhappy that an older sibling was being cheated out of something by a younger sibling. There is a bigger story here that isn't quite as fun, but one that we should touch on before we move forward, forward in the story. We mention her often, but this is Will Gaffney, who's a brilliant Old Testament theologian, and she talks about how Rachel and Leah are offered to Jacob as chattel, as possessions of their father, not as people in their own right. Gaffney points out that the text says that Jacob loved Rachel, but at no point does it say how Rachel felt about Jacob. Actually, she says that there's no woman in the whole of the Bible who is described as loving anyone else. The woman's role in the relationship is just not touched upon in the entirety of the Bible. But the story goes on. The the story says that they do get married, and then Leah starts having kids, but Rachel can't have kids. So she gives her servant, Bilhah, to Jacob so that he can have kids with her, and then Rachel can raise them as if they were hers. You might recognize that story because it's the inspiration for The Handmaid's Tale, which is a book that if you haven't read, you really should read. And it's also a TV show that if you haven't seen, you should really read the book. Anyway, eventually... (laughs) Rachel does get pregnant and she gives birth to Joseph. Joseph was at least Jacob's 12th child, at least his 11th son, but this was the one that he really loved. This was Rachel's firstborn and therefore that was the child that Jacob really loved. This causes some problems as the story goes on and I'm sure Steve will pick up on a bit of that later next week. So Jacob, after this, now he's got his his true heir. He decides that he'd like to go back home. And then he deceives Laban. Having deceived his brother all those years ago, he then deceives Laban to get some more money out of him before he leaves cheating to get Laban's strong animals and leaving the weak ones. And then he's off. He goes. The problem is, though, that if he's going to go home, he's going to see Esau for the first time since he stole the birthright and then legged it before Esau could get hold of him. So he's really worried about it, understandably, I reckon. And he prepares carefully for this on his way home. One night on the way back, he gets into a fight, which is the bit that Philip read and the bit that I'll talk about a bit later on. But when he eventually gets back to Esau, his brother forgives him and they make up. There are a few more bits to the story that we haven't got time to go through, but eventually Jacob and Esau reunited, bury their father Isaac together. It is a big story, which I've run through incredibly quickly, but for the rest of the morning, I'm just going to focus on one part of it, and that's the section that Philip read to us from Genesis 32, verse 24 to 28 say, So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he couldn't overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. The man said, what's your name? Jacob, he answered. The man said, you will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans, and you have overcome. Over the years, theologians have argued about who it was that Jacob wrestled with that night. Was it just a random man that he ended up walking past? Was it Esau, maybe? Was it an angel? 
Or was it actually God? This is an argument that's been going on since the story was first told. In the book of Hosea, a bit later, in the Old Testament, he is described as an angel. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. Uh, and there's a 12th century rabbi, Rabbi Samuel ben Mir, who agrees. He said that the angel had come to prevent Jacob from running back, running away from his homeland. So he, the angel was there to stop Jacob from going back to Laban because he was scared of meeting up with Esau. You could definitely find some verses in chapter 32 which back some of this up. Jacob sent some messages ahead of him. They came back and told Jacob that Esau was coming to meet him with 400 men. And verse 7 says that Jacob was in great fear and distress. There are some other theologians who argue that it's metaphorical, that there was actually no one there at all, and that Jacob was actually just wrestling with himself. This is Rabbi Dania Ruttenberg, who I've quoted a few times recently, and if you don't know her, you really should look her up. She's a fantastic Old Testament scholar. Um, and she says that Jacob, in his life, was constantly surrounded by people. He had multiple wives, he had many kids, he had many employees, many people who worked the land with him. And so he was never alone. And then suddenly, as he's on this journey, he takes himself away one evening. And maybe, she says, maybe it's when Jacob is alone that he can finally start to face himself that he can finally start to grapple with the decisions that he's made, the things that he's done over all of those years, who he had harmed. I wonder if there's something in that. How many times have you heard or said, I really wrestled with that decision? How many times have you been kept awake by a big decision all night long, tossing and turning in your bed, and then when you wake up, you feel like you haven't slept at all. People say, I'm shattered. I felt like I went 12 rounds with someone last night. Maybe that's what was going on with Jacob. Or maybe he actually was wrestling with God. That's the literal explanation here, the literal translation of Israel. It means the one who struggles with God. The I is part of the grammatical construct of the word. The SR is the root of the word to struggle and L is one of God's names. I like this idea. I like the idea of Jacob wrestling with God. Because the thing is, regardless of who he was wrestling with, there's something that changes in Jacob that night. Something real changes in him during the night. See, because Jacob, until this point, he's not been great stealing his brother's birthright, running away, stealing the good cattle from his father-in-law, not being able to own up to anything. Even his name, Jacob, means heel catcher or the one who follows upon the heels of another. In a society where names really mattered, this wasn't a great one. Madeline Longle was an author, and she wrote this about Jacob. The glorious message of Scripture is that we do not have to be perfect for our maker to love us. All through the great stories, heavenly love is lavished on visibly imperfect people. Scripture asks us to look at Jacob as he really is, to look at ourselves as we really are, and then realize 
that this is who God loves. Take a second to take that in. Think about those words and realize that they apply to you, to every single one of us in this room. But Jacob leaves this fight a very different man to the man who went into it. He enters having stolen a blessing from his brother. He leaves it, refusing to go until he gets a blessing of his own. He knows he shouldn't have got that first blessing. He knows he stole it. It wasn't his. It was Esau's. But now they've been fighting all night, and the man says, let me go, it's daybreak. And verse 26, Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. All of my life, I am known, I know myself that I have had a blessing that I didn't deserve, that I didn't work for, that I didn't fight for. And now I have fought all night long. And for the first time in my whole life, I deserve a blessing of my own. I want the blessing that I can own. And so I am not letting you go until you bless me. This, for me, is the moment where Jacob wakes up. The moment where Jacob grows up. Where he stops messing around, stops lying, stops deceiving people and grows up. Many of you will know or will have read some stuff by this man, Richard Raw. He's a Franciscan monk and an author. And he wrote a book called Falling Upward, where he talks about there being two stages of life, two halves of life. In the first half, we're preoccupied with what he calls ego needs, our reputation, affirmation from others, financial security, some experience of success for ourselves. I think Jacob, until this night, has been living in the first half of life. And I just wonder if this wrestling match pushes him towards the second half. Richard Raw says we are led into the second half of life by an experience of loss, of failure or brokenness that we didn't want or choose and which we cannot handle with the resources that we currently have. Jacob limps away from this fight with a hip injury. But I wonder if it's more than that. I wonder if the brokenness that he is feeling has more to do with the reunion with Esau, which is now right in front of him. I wonder if this has focused Jacob's mind on the choices that he's made. And it's this brokenness that has helped him to start to grow into the second half of life. The second half is about a second simplicity, a willingness to accept mystery. People in the second half of life don't have to fight for certainty or control because they trust in the overarching story of who God is. Life in all its ups and downs becomes a spiritual teacher in itself. Jacob hadn't totally got there. No one does immediately. But I do wonder if this night helped him to start that journey. A couple more things. I think this story tells us that it's okay to wrestle with God. That it's okay not to be settled, not to have everything sorted, not to have all the answers. It's okay to wrestle, to struggle. 
And I don't know about you, but if that is true, that is a relief to me. Because I struggle with stuff all the time. I wrestle with stuff all the time. Because we live in the midst of the struggle, don't we? We live in the middle of the wrestling match. All of us. Every day we live in the struggle of wanting to see things change. Wanting to see things improve. But we have to deal with the fact that sometimes things don't change. Sometimes things haven't improved. Earlier this week, I got an email from Flick, who's been leading the service here, as most of you will know, is our community and families manager during the week. And she's been doing some work with a load of families in our local area who are struggling with their council housing. Um, she'd emailed the local council to get an update on some of these cases, and they replied to say that they wished that they could help, but they just didn't have any houses that we could move these families into. And then they told us this. There are currently, in this borough alone, over 2,800 families who are in temporary accommodation waiting for a permanent home. That is over one in 50 households in the whole borough. 2% of the people who live here are in temporary accommodation. And temporary accommodation could be anywhere across London. I have a friend with small kids who is an hour away from her primary school. And every morning, she has to bundle four kids on the tube and do an hour's commute just so they can get to school. The email also said this. The average waiting time for permanent social housing for those with an urgent housing need is currently in excess of six years. Six years. So if you have an urgent need for housing, you might need two extra bedrooms because you've got a big family. Your family could be in danger because of where you live. If you are at that urgent level of housing need, Six years. Now, I don't blame the council for this. They are genuinely trying to work with us on this, and their funding has been cut by 50% since 2010 uh, as the population has increased. So they've got more people, and they're trying to provide services to those more people with 50% of the money that they had just over a decade ago. And they are really genuinely trying to work with us on this. But... There are plenty of empty houses, plenty of them. There are over 1,100 empty homes in Lambeth alone. In the city of London, just across the river, there's a patch where a third of the houses there are empty. In London, there are over 30,000 homes which have been unoccupied for over six months because it's a good investment, isn't it? Because it brings in lots of money. Because if you've got money, you can buy a flat and just let it appreciate in value. So, hey, what does it matter if 2% of Lambeth are living in temporary accommodation? As long as London property prices carry on rising. Honestly, it makes me angry. I would hope that those of you who know me would say that I'm generally pretty positive. But when I got this email on Thursday... 
I literally had to close the lid of my laptop and I got up and walked out of my office because there was no response that I could give at that point that was going to help the situation. <laughs> this is the struggle. This is the wrestle that we are in every day. But like Jacob, we have to carry on fighting. We have to get hold of that anonymous wrestler, an angel, God, whoever it was. We have to get hold of them. And we have to keep hold of them. And we have to keep fighting all night long, even when we're tired. We have to keep on fighting. As I end, one more verse. Chapter 32, verse 31 says, The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. At the end of the fight, Jacob ends up with a limp. Sometimes this stuff is costly. It isn't easy. It takes wrestling all night. Sometimes joy does come in the morning. Sometimes we do get a win, but we don't get a win without going through the struggle. And sometimes we don't get a win without it costing us something. That could be money, it could be time, it could be that we have to live a less luxurious lifestyle, that we can't do everything that we want to do because we have to be willing for this to hurt us in some way. Because sometimes the really good stuff requires fighting for. Some things don't come easily, but if you want the blessing, if you genuinely want to transform things, sometimes you've got to be willing to walk with a limp for a bit. I'm going to end and pass you back to Flick, and I'm going to end with a quote that you might have heard before. In 1912, William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army, walked into the Royal Albert Hall to give his final address to 7,000 Salvation Army officers. He was 83 years old. He was suffering from ill health after contracting a serious eye infection, and he knew that this would be his final speech to the Salvation Army officers. And he ended that talk with these words, which are now famous. While women weep as they do now, I'll fight. While children go hungry as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison, in and out, in and out as they do now, I'll fight. While there is a poor lost girl upon the streets, while there remains one dark soul without the light of God, I will fight. I'll fight to the very end. William Booth was willing to fight. And I think that Jacob teaches us that we need to be too.